Create Out Loud is brought to you by Anchor.fm. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast so you can, yes, create out loud. It's free. They give you tools so you can record easily on your phone or your computer. They'll distribute the podcast for you. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started. Because yeah, I want you to create out loud. Hey everyone, welcome back to Create Out Loud with me, Jen Loudon. On this show, we invite the world's most interesting, dynamic, and groundbreaking creatives to get vulnerable about their creative journey and to share the lessons they learned along the way so you can have a deep and fulfilling creative life too. This week, we're speaking to Amy Nizukalitatu. She's an award-winning poet and essayist whose New York Times bestselling essay collection, World of Wonders, broke through the pop culture to such an extent that it was recently featured as a Jeopardy question. (laughs) Actively practicing wonder is Amy's guiding creative philosophy. I love this book so much, and I love wonder so much, and I'm always trying to practice and cultivate it more in my life, so that's why I invited her on. And this conversation, like all the conversations at Create Out Loud, shifted the way I view my own creative process. And I hope it'll do the same for you too. Let's dive. I mean, it seems like a superpower we humans need if we're going to turn around the trajectory that we're on with politics and hating each other and the climate emergency is a sense of wonder. And you give us that in World of Wonders. And in reading it made me aware that everything is alive and precious, but not in a preachy way, but in this real visceral way. But it also really broke my heart open. And I wonder, is, is that is that how wonder works for you? Mm, that's such a good question. Thank you so much for your kind words. Um, anything I've taken action on in my life has been out of love first, love and wonderment. And so it would be really false for me to create a book about nature, about the environment, preying on a sense of fear and doom. Um, now, that's not to say that those books are, are pointless, you know, everybody works a different way, you know, as Walt Whitman says, do I contain multitudes? Very well, I contain <laughs> multitudes. I had two people in mind as my audience for the first time in my life. I wasn't thinking of, oh, will this sell? What will my po- poetry students think? You know, anything like that. I just was writing for two people and they were ages six and nine. My, my your, sons. Your sons. <laughs> yeah. oh. I knew my youngest was a little bit too young for this, but I was really kind of envisioning them reading this really at the ages that they are now, 11 and 14. So it was written to them, but they also are the best litmus test. They don't like it when anybody talks down to them. So they can tell when their mommy is like <laughs> trying to make everything just peachy keen. And, no, my, and my child's and, like that too. She's 27 yeah. now, but she's oh, like that okay. too. Yeah. It's been so amazing to see this book be in the hands of middle schoolers all the way to geriatric scientists. One of my number one things that I'm proud of is that I didn't want to talk down to anybody and I didn't want to also be Pollyanna-ish about anything Mm -hmm. as well. I simply wanted this to be a record of love. I wholeheartedly agree with Amy. I started a side project a few months ago, Create Plus Climate. You can find it under blog on my website, jenniferloudon.com. And it's all about how do we find ways to use our creativity to work to solve the climate emergency. For me, tapping into my creativity is key because I love to create. 
and it brings a sense of purpose and meaning and that's what we need otherwise we feel like there's no point we feel like it's too late and it's not and mitigate the worst effects of climate change and we can turn things around it's going to take a huge amount of effort though including all of us and not just our personal efforts but our political efforts but i think when we can tap into our creativity our zaniness our out-of-the-box thinking i think we're going to do more brings me to another thing about the book that I found so wonderful. And that is that you write about the racism that your parents and that you experience, especially, I mean, in life in general, but being Asians, Americans going into the wilderness or the outdoors mm -hmm. or nature gardening, but you do it in such a, a way of love for your parents mm, that okay. I found myself encountering it instead of the way that I might have as a white person as angry you know, mm. angry that that happened. I felt like I was encountering it again, like just breaking my heart open and really experiencing what it was like. And I was rereading some of the essays last night from a writer's point of view. And I also teach writing and I'm like, how well you wove together so many different strands of family stories with science, mm. with speaking directly to the reader. It felt like you took a lot of different leaps in the structure of the book, that it was quite courageous, almost yeah. a hybrid genre. It was definitely a risk. Many of the first drafts were very much chronological. It just didn't feel right because as, as I just said, like that's not how my brain works. I don't think that's how really anybody's brain works in some ways. I mean, it makes for a nice meat package. Here's me at age four being brought to an aquarium by my Asian American parents at the first time and feeling wonderment at those first early memories all the way to a happy marriage with my uh, husband and, and my two boys. That makes for a nice neat story, but that's not how I think memory works. You'll see maybe a tree and think of something in sixth grade and maybe that will remind you of your first crush or that reminds you to the first time you saw your mom's try to hold back tears or you know that kind of thing and then and then be flashback to gosh your son's face looks just like his grandmother's you know or something like that. That's how kind of memory works and because I think I moved around so much as a kid my recollections of being outside they overlap. And that's exactly what I wanted to show that we are all connected, that I could be in Mississippi and see a catalpa tree and be reminded of the first time I saw a catalpa in Kansas. Yeah. And one way I could have had a very, very lonesome childhood, but my father always taught me how to read the stars no matter where I was in Arizona or Iowa or Chicago. That's a skill that I have now that I could be in, again, Mississippi, where I am now and find my buddies up in the stars. Or I could be pre-pandemic when I was traveling, I could look up in Omaha, Nebraska and see, see my buddies in a different position. And just to see that familiarity of the outdoors all over this planet, really, was such a steady companion throughout all my life. And I had never seen that in books. I had never seen an Asian American just frankly be outside, Jennifer. Mm -hmm. In every movie, there was never anybody that looked like me literally outdoors. <laughs> and if they were outdoors, they had names like Long Duck Dong. <laughs> and they were the, you know, 16 Candles, the, the right. absolute butt of the joke where every time they spoke, there was a <gasps> gong played. You know what right. I mean? Like, yeah. imagine, and I didn't have the awareness or the vocabulary for this growing up in the 80s, but mm -hmm. imagine 
thing you go your whole life and you don't see the thing that you love to do be outside with your family ever represented ever in any movie books anything like that so it begins to make you think oh gosh you don't belong here or stick to stay in your lane you should be you know in pre-med stay with pre-med or be an engineer any of the things that you, that you do see represented on tv uh, and i was terrible in math so that made me feel even more isolated you know like where are the asian americans who love art and english and just being outside but who also love makeup and mtv and having crushes mm -hmm. the, the representations i had of anybody who loved being in the outdoors were granola no makeup no families and i'm out in the wilderness by myself yeah um, that's so true i didn't think about that but i discovered the outdoors on my own to stay mm. sane i moved to la when i was 19 to go to film school and oh. started to really struggle mentally hmm. and discovered the santa monica mountains Oh, and, wow. you know, had my little guidebook and would just go out and get lost. I'd always been an outdoors kid, but I lived in suburbia and on golf courses and places, sure. like not real nature. My parents weren't nature people. Mm -hmm. They were sports people. I never thought about that. But yeah, it's the sort of rugged individualism, right? It's not a family. Absolutely. I mean, I, I've thought about it a lot since with all the diversify outdoors movements that are yeah. happening. And if they did have a family, they were left for, you know, multiple times. And more often than not, it was the woman staying home um, mm -hmm. with the kids. So the kids were being brought outdoors, or if they were, it was not under the guidance of their naturalist father or, you know, that kind of thing. And I remember when this book was being dropped around to, to publishers, people were like, well, could this be, could we package this as a Asian American Thoreau? And I was like, no, I don't want that at all. Let's not forget Thoreau had his mom do his laundry. So and he cook could be for outside. him. Yeah, and exactly. bring in meals. Exactly. <laughs> It was really kind of an absence and a, and a hurt now looking back that you just didn't see anybody that was lauded in the outdoors was white, straight, and mostly male. And mostly and, alone. And mostly alone. And that's not at all what I what I wanted to be or had or hoped for in my, in my life. So, but it makes you feel if the thing that you hope for and wish isn't ever depicted, it makes you kind of, I think, sublimely say, how dare you want this? How dare yes. you dream to have a, a husband who would understand? How dare you dream to have kids and, and be present with them too, and also want to be a writer and also want to be outside? That is so important. And so there's two things I want to talk about from that. One is how dare you want this? Mm -hmm. Because I think one of the key points that I find over and over again with the people that I work with, primarily women or people who identify as women mm -hmm. around their creativity, which goes back to the uniqueness of this book, World of Wonders, mm. is permission. Yeah. Permission to say, this is what I care about. Or this, this is what I want to be a stand for. This is the forms that I want to play in. Mm -hmm. How did you develop that self-permission? You know, I think I just finally, I, I don't think there was any like kind of watershed moment. Mm -hmm. It was kind of looking at a practical, I, you know, that's, gosh, that's such a good question. It's never been asked to me um, in that particular way. So I love, I love that. Let me, let me ponder that for a moment. Mm -hmm. There was no watershed moment, but I know that I had been telling my parents and they have it on old super eight, you know, movie, movie films. I want to be a doctor just like my mom, you know, just like mommy. And I learned at an early age, if I said that to a group of adults, I would get applause, literal applause. They'd trot me out at the doctor's parties. And why wouldn't you clap and smile, you know, and this little girl in pigtails. Forget the fact that I was usually carrying a book 
everybody kind of conveniently ignored that or forgot that. So when I said that I wanted to be adaptive, just like mommy, I got applause. I just kind of followed the applause until really late in college when I realized the thing that I love is not measuring powders and weighing things in a lab. It was almost like feeling like I couldn't imagine anymore. And I have a, I was known my whole life for having a wild imagination. I could not ima imagine a future in which I was in a laboratory. Um, it's so moving. I could not imagine. So moving to hear Amy say that. I could not imagine. What are you not able to imagine because the representation isn't there. I have a black student who is grappling with this right now because so much of what she learned in her uh, exclusive and wonderful education was white male writers. And while of course she's gone on to read widely of many, many people of color, those formative years of what it means to be a writer are something she still has to root out. I mean, it's actually a really interesting journaling prompt. What can I not imagine? It makes your head explode and just start writing and go for a page or two. What can I not imagine? What don't I have permission to want? Where do I need to get out of my rut to see, to take in that there are other ways to create other models? I don't know. This is a real habit of mine to keep looking and reading and thinking about the same things. I don't know if it is for you, but if so, it might be fun to fun. It might be powerful to mix it up. I, I simply couldn't. And also, I was terrified of the Bunsen burner. You can't be a, um, a chemistry major and terrified of the Bunsen burner. So that should have been a red giant flag. I mean, to this day, how do I get to be a junior in college and uh, as a chemistry major and never have lit, lit a Bunsen burner by myself? I always begged my lab partner or a cute boy to light it for me or something like that. You know, that should have been exhibit A. The, the times that I just felt like I was traveling without ever leaving a chair, the times where I felt like my curiosity was alive was when I was reading and writing. It was a giant leap of faith. Nobody gave me permission. Certainly my parents did not. And I just could not take another really week of being in a laboratory. So it was rather sudden. I had encountered a poem, actually a poem from a dear living poet who I'm now friends with. And we send Christmas cards to each other. The, the wonderful, wonderful poet, poet of my heart, Naomi Shihab Oh, yes. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. Of yet. course. And I and someone had left one of her poems on the honors study lounge door in my dorm or on, on a table. I encountered that. It was like Emily Dickinson. I felt like the top of my head was taken off. If I feel so cold, no fire can ever warm me. I know that that is poetry. You know, that's what I felt like when I read Naomi. I, I tacked up that poem to my dorm room bulletin board. Whose handwriting is this? Whose notes are these? Please see me in room 320. You know, later on that evening, the guy whose homework that was at my door and said, hi, I need that back. That's my, <laughs> that's my homework. By the way, it's called a poem. I didn't know that there were any living poets posts then until junior year of college. I and, love that so I, much. It's crazy. I mean, I went to a nice high school. I did AP English. I never was taught any living poets. And that, I think more than anything, is I think such a travesty that I could be in all these gifted classes, excelled in, in, in school, and never, never was told that there was a living poet. 
which um, goes back to the representation question in an yes. even more subtle way. If we yeah, don't know no. what we don't know, mm-hmm. maybe those moments of permission, inner permission can't click. Exactly. And, you know, that's not that long ago. That's mostly not like that now um, in high schools. And I'm so grateful for that. But boy, what an absence in my life. And I think, oh, gosh, I could have saved maybe three years earlier you know, if I had known or just what it would have been like to encounter any living poet. And who knows if I would have been a poet, but I just, it would have been nice to know an art form was still practiced by living uh, people, you know, and I, I simply thought that kind of went away at the turn of, you know, in the, in the 50s. I want to go back to kind of another version of permission question, which is you talked about the publisher saying, could we turn this into a, you know, Asian American Thoreau? Yeah. And, and I know that writers that are listening are like, but what did you do? How did you stand up for yourself? And, and how did you not give in to, well, okay, I can make it into that so I, so I can get it published? What was that yes. process like for you? It sounds easy now. And I don't know if I could do it again. I was, I just was so fed up, Jen. I was so fed up. This oh, was no. around no, 2015, feeling. 2016. The rhetoric that was going on, I mean, it's, who are we kidding? It's still going on. The political rhetoric that was going on of anything different was being presented by grownups who ought to know better as something to be afraid of or something to fear, something to distrust. You know, it came down to my, I guess, I'm forgetting how old he was, maybe seven, seven or eight, came home one day after school and was like, mommy, what does build that wall mean? What does build that wall mean? You know, at the time, you know, they were saying the P word on the news. Mm -hmm. So we had to keep things hushed up, not because we were trying to protect our kids from knowing about the world, but because our leaders were so disappointing Mm -hmm. and using like swear words to describe in violent term, violent assaults against women. I wanted to keep my six-year-old from hearing that. I don't know exactly what I said to my son, but I found out that one of his dearest friends, who's Latino, the kind of the life of the classroom, the class clown, him and my, my son were eating together at lunch and on a table full of boys just started turning to them. My son is my, I married a white guy. So he's half Asian, half, half white, but they turned to my son and his Latino friend and started chanting, build that wall, build that wall. And and my son literally didn't know what they meant, but the Mm. Latino boy, his friend knew exactly. And he, again, the life of the classroom, just like was almost trying not to cry and just quietly finished up his lunch and then like left. And leaving my son there, my son was so confused. He had never seen him so serious. He'd never seen his friend so serious. He just knew it was something hurtful. And that they stopped. He thought it was directed towards him too. But they stopped the minute his friend like left the cafeteria. These are eight-year-olds, seven-year-olds. And my youngest at the time was six. And he worships his little brother. So he was listening like, what does Bill that wall mean too, mommy? I was kind of sick of anything different being made to feel wrong in any way shape or form be afraid of it or get rid of it somehow that kind of thing while I'm not gonna lie I got a lot of rejections a lot of people who who were kind of interested in the concept but when it came down to it passed on it that I wanted not just an illustrator which already wrangled people but Mm -hmm, does yeah and I also said I really want an Asian American illustrator so that also wrangled even more feathers and I'm not gonna lie it was there was a moment where I thought well maybe just this once if I could get my foot in the door I'll do whatever they want me to do Mm -hmm. 
and then but then I have to face my children to see like oh am I making myself safe or packet marketable or so I can make my difference nothing to celebrate but to hide mm -hmm. and I just I would not be able to live with myself in that way it was for sure hard because of course you get dangled a publication agreement and you want to take it if you mm -hmm. say yes 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 but I just kept going and that that kind of gave me the the impetus to say like I if I change this to get my foot in the door to get a publishing contract what else would I change later and where does it end where do I yeah. finally get to say this I wanted to be with a publisher that celebrated and wanted me to shine rather than to kind of fit their already existing list stale list frankly mm -hmm. mainly white list frankly you know that mm -hmm. kind of thing. and that was milkweed which is a small little independent press and they took the, such a big chance on me and now I hope they're laughing um, and celebrating and when we get to see each other we haven't seen each other still we'll get to celebrate with rosé and, and and all that kind of stuff yeah where will it <laughs> stop and what line in the sand do we have to draw for our own work? It's and there's no right answer. There is no but right there answer. But there is there no. is the feeling that you know when there's when it's wrong. Yeah, <laughs> there's yeah. the feeling when you know like no, if I'm doing that, I am I am betraying something. When Amy was talking about her publishing experience, it reminded me of Angeline Bully, who I interviewed for season one, and she is the author of The Firekeeper's Daughter, a wonderful YA novel, Anishinaabe woman, and she tells an incredible story in that episode. You can find it um, wherever you listen to Create Out Loud from season one about sticking with her vision of this story, even as other editors and, and possibilities came along and knowing that this is what she wanted. And I think we need those role models. We need those stories in our heads, not to be stubborn and not that there's one size fits all and not that compromise is wrong at all, but just to know that if there's something in us that says, nope, this is a line I don't want to cross. Other people have said the same thing throughout history. Yeah, and, myself. and when it came to like the color of my skin and the outdoors, that just was the line that for me, I couldn't, I couldn't acquiesce to anymore. I had done that kind of all my life. So in some ways I see it now. I was nervous as I'll get out when it was happening, but I held my ground for my mom, for my dad. Anytime anybody had ever made fun of their accents or asked, what are you doing out here when they were on the mountains, you know, in a botanical gardens, even, you know, that kind of thing. Can I help? you you know the way they talked to my mother who was the valedictorian of her class you know she was the first female doctor in her village in in the philippines and hearing people say like are you lost ma'am can i help you you know what i mean when God. I didn't have the language of it, but mm -hmm. as a six-year-old, I was absolutely watching my mom's face. So I mm -hmm. didn't want my six-year-old to see me have to swallow anything. Kind of was easy. I'm not going to lie. It was also nervous. So hard. Yeah, yeah I get hard. it. it was... In one of your interviews, you said that you have maybe not any longer, but in the past, a sentence by Brian Doyle, the world is still stuffed with astonishments mm. beyond our wildest imagining. Yeah, what else yeah. is in your notebook? Oh, gosh. You know, I, I turned to this again when I think it was just this past Monday, a dear friend of mine pointed out to me, you know, it rained in Greenland for the first time yes. ever. Did you see that? I did. A story like that makes me want to just crawl into a fetal position and uh, and put throw a weighted blanket over me, you know. 
But I remembered, and this was something I wrote down from Margaret Atwood when someone asked her, like, how do you, how do you still go on? How do you write with any bit of hope, you know, about the future? How do you not turn completely dystopian, you know, forever and ever now, you know, even darker Handmaid's Tale? Or, and she said simply in her very wise way, the future is not written yet. The future is not written yet. I love that so much. And I just wonder, like, what happens if those of us who are writers, like, write what we love or write out of what we love rather than what we are afraid of losing. But I just think if we wrote about what is already in abundance rather than what we are lacking or what is lost, for again, going back to what I originally said, that's what spurs me to action. You know, mm -hmm. like, oh, these cassowaries exist. These wild, wacky birds that really are living dinosaurs, they exist. Dinosaurs are not extinct. They're right here on this planet. What if we didn't build so many roads? We wrote to senators. What if, what if we didn't keep them in zoos necessarily all the time? You know, if we look towards what we have already, maybe our actions could be born of love rather than fear. The, I'm not being prescriptive for sure. There's some really good actions that come out of fear and anger and mm -hmm. sadness. But it seems but, more sustainable to me. It always has. It seems sustainable. For, for me personally. Time. And just from a brain point of view, when I'm filled with fear, I shut down. Yeah. I know not everybody does, yeah. but I do. Me too. And when I'm filled with appreciation or gratitude or wonder. Yes from the title of your book, World of mm -hmm. Wonders, I feel like I'm more likely, that's where I take more action. That's when I make the phone calls more. That's when yes, I absolutely. am more generous with my money. That's when I'm yeah. trying to break the climate mm -hmm. silence more. I feel like more empowered, instead of feeling so small, I actually feel so connected. When you make wonder a habit, if I feel less alone. When mm -hmm. wonder becomes a habit, you feel less alone because wonder for me is being curious about something besides yourself. You want to know more and it brings a smile to your face. You know, I love saying too, one of my things that I discovered when I was writing this book, the root word for the word wonder is the same as the root word for smile. Gosh, I needed that this during this pandemic, don't you? Like, yeah, many of us have that as kids, like look at the moon or mm -hmm. you know, uh, look at this leaf and it would be like this really crappy looking leaf, but just look at this leaf. It looks like a bear or and if that puts a smile on your face and makes you want to learn more or why is that cloud so pink like what the heck why is it so pink I want to actually know about that and my hope is that that can be translated to one understanding that we are so connected even mm -hmm. when we are feeling alone I have so many friends who are in studio apartments still through this pandemic one of the ways they've said that it felt less alone is realizing like gosh this fish on the other side of the planet is actually connected to me by this, by this, by this, by this, by this. And it's still alive and thriving. And I, I am that. too, you know, like, even though I feel like I'm not thriving, I, I really am. And I, ha I have it better than a lot of people. I'm like being able to recognize the abundance that we have, even while not ignoring very real things we might be lacking. I think it just helps us feel less alone. And, you know, I grew up with no video games and limited screen time and things like that. And I know my kids were, my own kids were like, mom, everybody in fifth grade has a phone except me. But you know what? I feel a lot as a parent. But one of the things I'm so, so proud of is that they can sit in a waiting room and completely entertain themselves. They do not need electricity. They do not need a screen. I'm so proud of that. They can actually just look out a window and daydream. They can read a book or they can write something. Thing, you know, um, they can sketch. 
all the things that kind of kids did in the 70s and 80s, but they're still doing it. And gosh, I'm so grateful for that. Did you notice any difference in writing the essays in World of Wonders versus writing poems? Oh, absolutely. For one, I felt completely unfettered by not having to worry about the tension of where I'm going to put this line break. How do I get the reader interested in getting to the next stanza, the next stanza? With World of Wonders, I started it with questions that that I had, not only about the animal, but what it made me think about my own growing up at that moment in time, you know, as well. So it wasn't because I had a lot to say about each animal. I had so many questions about just kind of my place in this big giant web of life, you know, that kind of thing. I felt because I can, because I can remember the exact day I went up to my little office, I shut the door when the kids went to bed and I started writing and I felt so unfettered by letting my sentences unspool as opposed to wondering about a line break. So just even there was definitely some longer sentences that I'm used to, but I just didn't, I wanted to be able to show on a sentence level, my exuberance for different plants and animals, as well as when I was afraid or when Mm -hmm. I was so upset, you know, when I'm upset, I don't speak in short, halting sentences. I mean, you know, going la 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 la, you know, like that kind of thing. And I think that's what my friends do. All my beloveds do that too. When they're excited or when they're upset, I don't want to say, "Wait, where's the line break?" <laughs> so it was great. I loved when I in grad school. My thesis was actually in. I had a double MFA in poetry and nonfiction. I just had earlier success with poetry, so it was just like revisiting an old, long lost friend, um, mm-hmm. coming to sentences and keep. I still wanted to keep tension and keep narrative going but it was so great to have a long sentence yeah did you have a structure in mind for the book when you started no except for the fact that I wanted to just be short and that's the Mm -hmm. poet in me coming through Mm -hmm. you know uh, I'm not afraid to say I mean writing three pages I just felt like I ran a 5k like it is physically exhausting no you felt you felt like you ran an ultra marathon (laughs) yeah yeah exactly exactly I also wanted to leave the reader wanting to say like, wait a minute, what is the salamander? Put down the book and then go look it up. That's true. And that's what happens. You, oh, you're, good. You're, it's so like glad. the whole world opens up and you're like, I got to read about this. And what about that? And it, it does, it gets that cure. It's a curiosity wetter. If yeah. that's a way to say oh, that. I'm so glad. <laughs> that makes me so happy. That's, that's exactly it. I want it to almost be so contagious. And that's what I find with wonder is that wonder is so contagious. One of your beloveds is telling you about something that they are just in awe over or astonished over whether or not it's fashion or a book or a song they heard or the moon in a particular light it's kind of contagious then you want to share something that astonished you and I just I just think that's such a good practice I think maybe for many of us in about junior high that sense of letting yourself be astonished by on like on a daily basis kind of gets tamped out of us a lot Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. for sure I know it was a little bit for me in college I was indoors a lot I don't want people thinking oh Amy just was like out of the womb outside all the time you know no not but I the whole point is is that I found it again and because I've had it as a you know since I was a little girl and my beloveds practiced it in front of me it was easy to come back to but I want to also say that if you've forgotten what it's like to have that kind of childlike wonder or be astonished or be curious it's not hard to pick up it really truly isn't because I am so certain we had that as kids mm-hmm. and it's so built into our being it Absolutely. is it's how we come out I mean just spend time with a kid and you're like yeah. oh right 
You remember. Look, look yeah. is one of their favorite words. This, mommy, watch, watch. Are you watching? It becomes contagious. There's so, so many days, Jen, where it is just hard. I mean, there was time in 2020 where I was like, really like, I didn't want to look at my laptop because I was opening it so quietly. Like what? Burger hornets. There was a time like almost every day there was another crisis of something. One thing that didn't falter though was just to be like, gosh, the rain is a little bit pretty tonight. And just to even have that moment, I feel like nobody can take that away from you. But you've got to let yourself be open to that. And it's free. It's free. It doesn't require tools. It doesn't require electricity that's what I kind of love about wonder is that it only requires you to be a little bit vulnerable and it's a vulnerable thing to ask I'm aware of that because it forces you to admit you don't know it all the vulnerability of desire, the vulnerability of wonder, the vulnerability of not becoming a closed off heart. I don't think we can realize our creative dreams and desires if we don't feel the vulnerability of being alive, the tenderness, the absolute deep knowledge in every one of our cells that it could end at any moment for ourselves or for the people we love. Wonder connects us to so much. It connects us to so much that breaks our heart, especially as the world is in such dire straits. We have to learn to steady ourselves in the midst of that. We have to learn to make it safe to stay there with it so we can bring back whatever our creative images and ideas and stories are to help wake and nourish other people, just like Amy has done with her book of essays, World of Wonders. But it's intense. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot of feeling. And I think it all becomes more bearable and doable when A, we know we're not alone, which is what this podcast is about. But B, we also learn to steady our minds and relax our bodies and not approach these intense feelings and truths from a, ten a place of tension and hiding. Because that, I think, then leads us away from wonder and away from the vulnerability of desire and the love and the interconnectedness. It forces yeah. you to feel and to feel connected. And yeah. I mean, that goes back to, to, to the love and the wonder in the book, but you're even more open then to the racism that you and your parents experienced. You're even more open yeah. to the climate crisis and things disappearing and and I think a lot of us, we're shutting down, especially during the pandemic, because it's just so painful. I find myself yeah. shutting down in, in ways that I never shut down before. Absolutely. Absolutely. The powers that be will do everything to convince you that you are alone or anybody's success happened on their own. That or that it's too are, late it's and too there's late. no point. Exactly. And to distrust people and to have fear of any difference. And that's the most, anytime I hear a leader say that, I try to tell my students, tell my children, that's the most unnatural thing to say because the rest of nature says otherwise. We are all connected and we all depend on each other for our survival. So when you have leaders to say like, oh, make this great, we're the number one, that's the most unnatural way to think. That's the most unnatural way to let your heart be in this world like that. That is so gross when everything else in nature 
plants, trees, plankton in the sea will tell you different. They're wiser than us in saying like, we're actually all connected. And when you don't listen to that, that's the problems of the world. When yeah. you, your first inclination, when you see a brown person in, in a forest is to say like, oh, they don't belong here. Where's my gun? Or, oh, you're different. I shouldn't think about dating you. Or, mm -hmm. oh, you have a different sexuality than me. That's against my religion somehow I shouldn't you're not worthy of goodness or kindness you know that kind of thing you have a different ability than me oh well this place shouldn't be for you I shouldn't make it anytime that there's a separation that's so unnatural and that's I think the core of so many of our problems and also final thing I'll say is that you could tell in five seconds I know you can do this too Jen in five seconds if a person has wonder in their lives or is even curious about anything oh it's so true it's, oh my gosh you right? can see it in their body language you could see it in their body language yeah. they just they're not oh it's so sad so sad there's just a shell of a person like an exoskeleton and it is so sad it's like the cicada husk you know like, <laughs> that's oh a great gosh. metaphor except that they're animated they get the function. <laughs> but yeah, because being curious and having wonder means you don't have all the answers mm. And how many of our leaders don't want to show that, that they don't know, that they want to take five and look look it up, ask for help, you know, that kind of thing. So when someone doesn't have wonder in their lives, it actually is dangerous. It's not just gross and kind of sad. It's also dangerous because if they have the power to enact rules on a, on society, yikes. When, they, when they're not willing to admit that they are not the expert on something, that they mm -hmm. need help. Oh or to God. feel their interconnectedness. With, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. absolutely that they are actually connected to a person that is so different. Their whole life is so different, but they're, that they don't recognize their shared humanity. Yikes. Then, then what we see is animated uh, cicada husk. <laughs> walking around they'll never forget that image now, <laughs> why are we giving them power you know? yeah, like, that's a great question it's just i want i want to see a, i want to see a heartbeat underneath that husk i love this way <laughs> of thinking about wonder it's wonderful <laughs> i like to ask one final question of my yes. guests what do you want to learn next Oh my gosh, that's such a brilliant question, but I feel like I'm just going to be such a nerd because there's so much, Jen, there's so much. <laughs> you know, I lived for 15 years in New York and it still feels like summer in Mississippi, so I don't know why this, I'm thinking about this, but I am completely enamored with sugaring, sugar houses, making maple syrup. Just, I love how maple syrup is made. Have you, do you know how this is? Just a little bit, but I did <laughs> not expect that. I'm going <laughs> to learn. Funny, you know, during the pandemics, we've tried to do this thing of like pancake Saturday. Like, I just feel no matter how crappy of a week you have, if you have a little bit of flour, you can make some yummy pancakes and feel a little bit better, you know, if, you, if you're able to have carbs. And, and I just got thinking of like, dang, you know, I was telling my husband, like, we lived in basically like a location and this is on me. So I'm, I want to, I'm happy to share this. We lived with maple trees and maple houses all over the place. We maybe went a couple times to, you know, their sugaring days when the last sugar snow is falling, get maple candy candy and maple bacon and maple sausage and all this stuff. But I never asked questions that here I tell my students to ask all the time. I'm such a nerd. I'm sorry, <laughs> but it's the truth. You asked me. I've been reading like 
how to tap maples. What are the best maples for sugaring and when and what is, when is the best time for sugar snow? I, you know, I blame Laura Ingalls Wilder for all of this. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. This? Oh my gosh, there's a certain generation of readers. Iowa reading this with those amazing pencil soft drawings by, is it Garth Williams? Yeah. Garth Williams. Yes. I just wanted to have like a sugaring weekend with my family. And, you know, and didn't you just daydream as a little girl in Florida of just having so much wonder of like, gosh, there's a place on this in this country that gets so cold um, and trees can give off this sweet sugar and just even a taste of it is enough to last you all season, you know, like just the memory of sugar. Like I remember that with such fun and I know there's a lot of terrible things that she wrote about Native Americans, but the moment of writing about sugar, I've been researching sugar, you know, sugar production that. and but specifically maple syrup. And I wanted to see, I'm trying to make a list of all the different shades of blue in glaciers so that's on a back burner right now there's there's certain meanings for when the glacier turns this blue and that blue and I don't know why I'm feeling maybe it's because I'm in Mississippi but I'm reading about ice and sugar right now <laughs> perfect Amy I feel like I've um, had a window into your wonderful heart and into wonder oh. <laughs> itself and my day feels so thank much you. bigger and my and my heart feels so much bigger thank you so much and thank you so much for writing your wonderful book World of Wonders oh thank you Jen and I want to I want to be clear too because I, I don't want anyone to think like ah oh, my day is just I wake up and there's wonder it's absolutely important to not dispel the grief and anxiety and and fear all of that stuff I have that all the time that's what I mean when I say I'm so adamant that it is a practice mm -hmm. because noticing wonder helps me just get through the muck and the yuck and yeah it's not about coding it or talk toxic. No, it's not no. toxic wonder no <laughs> absolutely yes I definitely oh my goodness I definitely do not like that. And I cannot stand that at all. I, I really can't take that. No, so it's very clear. It's very clear what your, uh, what your stand for. And I yeah. all, I'm all about like, like I did not know that. And I'm probably after sometime before the weekend is over, I'm going to be reading about Greenland. I did not know until my friend told me about, like, I absolutely, I believe in science, which seems like a radical thing to say. And, and I think that we all should really be reading on science a little bit here and there as much as, as your time allows. But I think, we should be reading about the planet. I think that will also help trigger little bits of wonder and curiosity even yes, more. Yes, it sure does. Yeah. Thank you it so does. much. Oh, thank you, Amy. Me. Thank you. That was a vacation for my heart. I feel so much more expansive and hopeful. What about you? What are you going to use from this? What are you going to take away? I think the big takeaway for me, and maybe this is for you too, is the practice of wonder. Next week, we have an experiment. We're trying something new here at Create Out Loud for season two, and it's a solo episode, just me and you sitting down. Well, I hope it'll be you. I hope you'll come back. I'm gonna talk about something I don't hear anybody else in the creative world talking about. And I think it is so essential for any creative act, any creative medium, and I, I can't wait to share with you this really important discovery. I think you'll find it creativity changing. Come back next week, subscribe, give us a review if you can. It makes such a difference to help us get discovered. But most of all, create out loud.